Hello! A quick note. The episode you're about to hear was released when this podcast operated under an old name, which was Pessimist's Archive. The podcast is now called Build for Tomorrow. Okay, enjoy. This is Build for Tomorrow, a podcast about the things from history that shaped us and how we can shape the future. I'm Jason Pfeiffer. I'm recording these words in October of the year 2020, shortly before an election that many people, including the candidates, often tell us is the most important election of our lifetime. And recently, that got me wondering, what is the history of the phrase, this is the most important election of our lifetime? Because, you know, we're told that all the time. Everyone has said that this is the most important election of our lifetime in pretty much every election of our lifetime. Like, for example... This is the most important election of our lifetime. This is the most important election of our times. Look, this is the most important election, certainly in my lifetime. This is the most important election in our lifetimes. This is the most important election of all our lifetimes. If you're hearing this podcast before the first Tuesday in November in the year 2020, then you may agree this is the most important election of our lifetime. And maybe it is. Maybe it is. I admit it sure feels that way. Or maybe you're listening to this four years from now. Maybe you're actually approaching Election Day 2024. And if that's the case, well, I bet you have been told that your election is the most important election of our lifetime. And I bet that feels true, too. I bet it's always felt true and always will feel true. And that makes me wonder, why? Because, okay, statistically speaking, every election cannot be the most important, right? I think. I mean, in a way, I suppose it's easy to fact check this. Just take 2012, when Chuck Norris unleashed this verbal karate chop. We're at a tipping point, and quite possibly our country as we know it may be lost forever. That's from a video that Chuck made about the dangers of re-electing Barack Obama. And then Obama was reelected, and maybe you think that was a good thing, and maybe you think that was a bad thing, but was our country as we know it lost forever, as Chuck Norris predicted? Birthday 1776, expiration date 2012? At the very least, a fact check would seem to confirm that America continues to exist with roughly the same laws and structures as we knew it eight years ago. So Chuck sure can kick a wooden board in half, but I think he's bad at properly identifying the singular tipping point in American history. But again, for enough people, Chuck's words felt very true at the time. The more I thought about this question of the most important election of our lifetime, the more curious I got about everything that it represents. I mean, we must logically understand that it can't always be true, right? So why do we talk like this? And more importantly, why do we respond to it? The question you're asking is actually one of the most important questions for our time. <laughs> but seriously, that's true. This is Robert Cloninger, and he is not interested in my question as a question of politics because he is not in politics. He's an extremely accomplished psychologist, one you'll hear more from later in this episode. But when I called him to ask about why we're always willing to believe that we're facing the most important election of our lifetime, he said, yeah, this is actually part of a much bigger issue. Because the way you phrased it, is meant, I think, to help each of us to become aware of how we are manipulated and how we do things that are objectively foolish. And we're misled. 
And why do we keep letting that happen? Because this isn't just a question of the most important election of our lifetime. It's a question about how easily other people can work our emotions. It's a question of how we become so gullible, not just in politics, but in anything in which someone is trying to influence our behavior in ways meaningful and also totally frivolous. And Robert asks the most pressing question there. Why do we keep letting that happen? So here's what we're going to do on this, which is, of course, the most important podcast episode of our lifetime. We are going to start with the history of the phrase in politics, but then we are going to go way past it, outward from politics and into culture, into life, into death, into the psychology of it all, and why phrases like the most important are like a bullseye into the workings of our brain and how we can become more resilient to that and less gullible, too. Huh. You know, come to think of it, maybe this is the most important podcast episode I've ever made. Or is that just what I want you to think? So we'll get into it all. And while you're listening, you can ponder this fun question. What was the least important election of our lifetime? I've got answers coming up after the break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, we're back. So like I said, this episode is going to begin with the phrase, the most important election of our lifetime, and then get really underneath it to understand the reason we talk this way, and more importantly, the reason we believe it. What can this teach us about how to think more critically? Think for ourselves. But first, let's see where this phrase actually came from. I did a lot of digging through newspaper archives, and the earliest reference I can find isn't exactly the phrase in question, but... It's pretty close. Today will be held the most important election you have ever been called upon to attend. That is the Philadelphia Aurora newspaper in 1805. And it goes on. Today you are to meet your old and uniform political opponents, the Federalists, who are supported by a mongrel faction destitute of all principles. Now, this is the earliest version that I could find. I can't say for certain that it is the literal birth of the construction, the most important election, dot, dot, dot. But I can say that even in those early days of the phrase and these early days of American democracy, things were getting ugly fast. What you just heard comes from a nearly full page statement from the paper. And the most important election in question is the election for Pennsylvania governor, which pitted incumbent Thomas McKean against challenger Simon Snyder. A big portion of the newspaper page is devoted to a side-by-side -side comparison chart. It's something you still see in partisan political mailings today where voters will get a postcard from some super PAC saying, you know, this candidate supports freedom and this candidate supports misery. So just for fun, here are a few lines from that chart in 1805. So you can see if you can figure out which candidate the Philadelphia Aurora editors were supporting. So first we have Simon Snyder. An independent farmer. And then Thomas McKean. An interested and prejudiced lawyer. Simon Snyder. Whose understanding is strong and discriminating. Thomas McKean. Whose understanding is perverted and weakened by passion and intemperance. Simon Snyder. Who has been a judge without being detested. Thomas McKean. 
who has been so intolerant a judge as to be detested. I mean, you gotta go with the guy who isn't detested, right? Wrong. Pennsylvania went for the guy who's detested, and he served three terms as governor in all. So onward we go through the most important elections of all time, which becomes just about every election, large and small. It's interesting, you know, former U.S. Speaker of the House Tip O'Neill had famously said that all politics is local, and that really is borne out in these most important elections. The earliest days of the phrase are often applied to local races. For example, I found the Greenville Democrat Sun, a newspaper in Tennessee, which reported in 1913 that... The most important election in the history of the country will take place on Thursday, June 21st, day after tomorrow, when Greene County will be called on to vote $200,000 for the purpose of resurfacing the roads. Imagine living in a world where the most important question you are called upon to answer is whether to resurface the roads. But again, we haven't heard the exact magic phrase yet. We heard the most important election in the history of the country. And in 1805, we heard the most important election you have ever been called upon to attend. And I found a ton of uses of the phrase a most important election, which is a nice hedge, and there are many more other stringent variations. In the Pittsfield Sun in 1813, you had... The most important election that has taken place since the adoption of the federal constitution. And in the Poughkeepsie Journal 1824, you had... The most important election that could occur in the American Union. And in the Vermont Chronicle 1864, you had... The most important election in the history of this nation. And yes, the year 1864 should jump out to you because that was the year Abraham Lincoln ran for and won re-election as president in the middle of the Civil War. So maybe the Vermont Chronicle was right about that one. But where can we find the exact words we use today? The words, the most important election in our lifetime. Well, again, I can't say definitively that I have found the very first usage of it, but I did find the very first one in the very robust archives of newspapers.com, and it dates back to 1936 in a newspaper called the Herald Press of St. Joseph, Michigan. And little aside here, our episode about the 1907 national moral crisis over teddy bears also originated in St. Joseph, Michigan and also quoted from the Herald Press. What history there? Anyway, on to the potential birth of a phrase. The year was 1936. Michigan Governor Frank Fitzgerald was running for re-election and held a rally where Fitzgerald himself only spoke for three minutes. What a guy. And then he let a parade of surrogates take over. One of them was Michigan's Secretary of State, Orville E. Atwood. And according to the Herald Press, Atwood told the adoring crowd this. The issue is whether American ideas are to continue or whether we are to adopt European regimentation and collectivism. This is the most important election of our lifetime. And there it is. The most important election of our lifetime. It's a phrase that defines politics today and was unleashed word for word at least as far back as 1936 to support Frank Fitzgerald in his run for re-election as governor. And just for funsies, you know what happened? Fitzgerald lost, and then he ran again two years later, won, and a year after that he got the flu and had a heart attack and became the first and only Michigan governor to die while in office. So that election was, I suppose, at least one of the most important elections of his lifetime. Too soon? Sorry. All right, so now we can establish it. Americans have been told since at least a few decades into the country's existence that many or most or even all of the elections they're called to vote in are the most important. And it makes me wonder... Why this phrase? And why has it endured for so long? Well, let me tell you a story that maybe will encapsulate it. This is Jim, and he knows a few things about elections. Jim Messina, I was Barack Obama's campaign manager and deputy White House chief of staff. 
And when Jim was serving as Obama's campaign manager, often around two o'clock in the morning, I'd get a call from the smartest political operative in the world, which is Bill Clinton. Hello? Good evening. Always in the middle of the night, always woke me up. And Bill Clinton would always say, Jim, every presidential election around the world is always a referendum on the future. And if you win that referendum, you'll win the election. If you don't, you won't. And when you start to kind of look back at, at how people begin to frame that, it has become sort of de rigueur in American politics to make one of the benchmarks for why you should participate into this election has consequences. And it's incredibly important. And some politicians have short-circuited that by saying it's the most important election of our lifetime. And of course, Jim's own candidate used the phrase too. But Jim says Obama didn't really like the phrase. So instead of delivering it straight... He also owned up to the fact that that's what politicians always said. And that rhetorical device allowed him to then make the case why this election mattered. Politicians say every time, oh, this is the most important election. This one's really that important. And that, Jim says, was actually a more effective strategy than straight up using the phrase. It said to the average person, I'm not just going to give you bullshit rhetoric. Because, you know, people have heard it before. So by trotting it out, calling BS on the BS, and then still basically making the case that this is the most important election of your lifetime, he built trust with his audience. It sounded like he wasn't just using a line on them, even as he just used a line on them. But Jim says there's another reason this phrase is particularly popular in American elections, perhaps really the most important reason, and that is this. American voter turnout is way below most of the developed world. I mean, just shy of 56% of the U.S. voting age population actually cast a ballot in 2016. One of the most effective ways to get people to vote has been to discuss the importance in their personal lives and why this election really affects them. And that's why politicians have used this kind of phrasing before. So in short, the phrase is doing three things. It's raising the stakes, it's creating a bond, and it's driving engagement. Which, when you think about it, makes this is the most important election of our lifetime a lot like a different kind of contest. One where the contestants are just as self-interested, but considerably more attractive. The most shocking finale in Bachelor history. Here's a special look at what promises to be one of the most dramatic and emotional finales ever. This season of The Bachelor is an unbelievable journey like you've never seen before. But this new season of The Bachelorette is like nothing you've ever seen before. And it's not because of the pandemic. Oh, sick. It's The Bachelor, where basically every season is promoted as the most dramatic season of The Bachelor ever. The phrase is used so often that it's kind of boxed the show into a corner. If a new episode uh, or a new season of The Bachelor was ever introduced and it didn't tell us it was going to be the most dramatic ever, that would be surprising. This is Robert Thompson, a professor of television and popular culture at Syracuse University. And he says that unlike politics, where hyperbole almost immediately became part of the show, television ramped up a little slower. If you go back to the 1950s, you will see promotions for upcoming shows, but it will say things like the Ed Sullivan Show tonight at eight o'clock, seven central. Ed's guests tonight are um, it, it, they were more informational 
But that was also at a time when there just wasn't much competition on television. Almost all the programming came from three networks, NBC, CBS, ABC. But future home of The Bachelor, ABC, was running a distant third, so NBC and CBS just weren't sweating it. Then, in the 1970s, ABC started to play catch-up and eventually became number one, and that is when networks started to change the way that they promoted shows, trying to convince you that everything was must-see TV and a show was a show that you didn't want to miss. And they'd often start putting together what they called very special episodes. Tuesday on a very special Full House. A story but back rock. then, Robert says the networks had a certain integrity to maintain. You couldn't advertise every single episode as being um, uh, a, a very special one. But then reality TV comes along, and that's pretty much what they did. It happened for a few reasons. One, by the time reality TV came along, there was even more competition for people's attention. And of course, that competition continues to grow today. And two, reality TV is super repetitive. A show like The Bachelor does not change. Same setting, same format, same pacing, same kinds of people playing the same roles. It's the same program over and over. So it really relies upon the drama coming in from the nature of the people who they've cast and how they behave, or more importantly, how they misbehave. So the drama is the only thing to advertise. But here's where it gets interesting. You might think, okay, if every season is advertised as the most dramatic season of The Bachelor ever, then regular Bachelor viewers must often disagree, right? Uh, what if last season had way more tears and shouting than this season? Won't they feel duped? And Richard said the answer is no, because sometimes, sometimes, the promise does pay off. I remember the very first Bachelor when it came out in the early part of the new millennium. Kissing one of the people on there was still a big deal back then. And oftentimes you'd go at episodes before that would happen. That first season was like a sexually repressed Victorian wedding compared to the new seasons. The stakes do get raised. Not always, not every time, but it does happen. And if you can pay off on the claim one time, then you can make the claim every time, which is kind of like elections. And also, weirdly, kind of like this. There was one period in the history of our species where we were down to about 100,000 people. We almost went extinct at one time. That is true, by the way. I had to look it up. It turns out it's known as the Toba Catastrophe Theory. It dates back to a volcano that exploded in what we now know as Indonesia about 75,000 years ago, led to a massive global cooling during what was already an ice age and nearly wiped out the Homo sapiens. And that guy you just heard has spent a lot of time trying to understand why people are motivated by stories like that. Yeah, my name's Bradley Garrett. I'm a social and cultural geographer at University College Dublin. And my most recent book is Bunker, Building for the End Times. Uh, I spent the past three years doing research with doomsday preppers around the world who were uh, preparing for the end of days in various ways. Okay, let's hit pause here for a second so I can explain why I just took you from hyperbolic campaign language to The Bachelor to Bradley talking about the end of days. So come along with me on a tangent that I promise will swing back around. Every so often, some group of people, and sometimes many people, believe that the world is about to end. It is so common that there's literally a Wikipedia page called List of Dates Predicted for Apocalyptic Events. And it is a long list. The first one is the year 66, when a Jewish Samaritan sect from the time thought that an uprising against the Romans was the final end times battle. Then you fast forward to the year 365, when a French bishop announces the end of the world, and there's pretty much an end times prediction every 
every 20 to 50 years after that up until today. The loudest one during our own lifetimes was back in 2012. Maybe you remember it. It was the end of the Mayan calendar, and it led to stuff like this. World leaders and scientists scramble today to say the end of the world is not near. Here's ABC's David Wright. The ancient Mayans are now a problem for NASA. The space agency has received so many panicked calls about the Mayan apocalypse, they put out a video to reassure people. And I don't know about you, but every time I hear some doomsday prediction, I think this. Consult the statistics. I mean, even if you began with the premise that the world will end, and not in five billion years when the sun enters its red giant phase, but like abruptly in the middle of civilization as we know it, well, even if that were the case, what are the odds that you are alive to see it? Consider the numbers. We as individuals are alive for such a very small slice of human history. Homo sapiens developed modern human behavior around 50,000 years ago, and how long does the average human live for? It's hard to average out across all of time and culture, but for whatever it's worth, the human lifespan in pre-modern times was thought to be about 30 years, and now it's as high as 83 years if you live in Japan. So purely for the sake of argument, let's say the average lifespan across time is 50 years. So 50,000 years of humanity broken up into a string of 50-year segments. You have a 0.1% chance of being alive during the 50-year segment when the apocalypse comes, and that's assuming the apocalypse happens sometime between the beginning of our species and right now, which, of course, it hasn't happened, so now we've got to add years. What if human life as we know it goes on for another 50,000 years? We don't know. Maybe it will. And then we're colonizing planets like Star Trek, and one day someone's like, the end of the world is here, and you say which world? And the person says, Earth. And you say, what, that old thing? Anyway, percentage chance of you being alive at that moment? 0.05%. My point is, we have to really flatter ourselves to think that we are alive in unprecedented or even critically important times. That our time, our spec on the continuum, is the moment when the continuum itself changes. But you can see why that idea is really appealing, right? We don't want to live in unimportant times. We don't want to think that we're not the bulwark that stands between all that is good and all that is not. We would rather think that we guard the precipice of history because it gives our life a kind of epic purpose. I mean, why does Chuck Norris make a video that says, We're at a tipping point and quite possibly our country as we know it may be lost forever. Because Chuck Norris, like so many people, like to flatter themselves by thinking that they play a role in history. If there is a tipping point, Chuck Norris can stand in front of it. If there's no tipping point, then Chuck Norris might as well go home and destroy a pint of Haagen-Dazs. And yet, of course, this is where things get complicated because there have been most important elections. Just like there have been most dramatic seasons of The Bachelor ever, and there have been terrible, terrible calamities and wars that have killed millions of people. Which brings me back to Bradley Garrett again, author of Bunker, Building for the End Times. There was a famous speech in 1961 where Kennedy essentially told everyone to go build bunkers in their backyards because the government couldn't afford to protect them. And that sparked a lot of fear in people. And also, I think, a sense of betrayal. You know, one of the primary functions of the government is supposed to be to protect its citizens. And when people realized that that wasn't going to happen, they started taking matters into their own hands. And that makes sense. I get how that can leave a lasting impression, passed down for generations. Bradley says the majority of preppers don't actually think the world is ending. I mean, some do, but most just want to escape a potential temporary disaster. 
they were just putting things in place that made them feel that they had a little bit more control over their lives at, at a time when I think many of us feel like we, we don't have control over much. And that is why, potentially crazy as it sounds, I see all of these things as related. The elections, the pop culture, the doomsday predictions, because they are all in some way or another about exploiting the maybe. They're about pointing to something that has happened in the past and then moving or motivating or manipulating people by convincing them that because it happened before, it is happening right now. And it is hard to know how to respond to this because, hey, when the president of the United States says to Build a bunker to avoid nuclear war. That sounds pretty legit. But how do we stop ourselves from reacting the same way when, well, here's that same ABC report about the end of the Mayan calendar in 2012. These backyard bunkers cost $100,000 installed. How many of these things are you selling? Last year, it was like one a month. And then since December, it went to one a day. Sometimes it's real and sometimes it's not. But it can feel the same and be presented the same based on the same argument and premised on the same fears. And to make things even more complicated, sometimes a massive change really does happen, and it is a good thing, not a bad thing. Go back 100 years and many men would have been hysterically talking about the tipping point of women being educated and entering the workforce. And, you know, they were right in one important way. It was a tipping point. They were witnessing a tipping point. And generations later, we are thankful for that tipping point, thankful for that change, and for the people who made it happen, not for the people who stood in its way. So how do we make sense of this? If we are always being told that now is the moment of great change and now is now or never, how can we tell the difference between something that is important and something that is manipulative, something that's good and something that's not? Well, remember this guy? The question you're asking is actually one of the most important questions for our time. <laughs> but seriously, that's true. He's a doctor who has spent his career studying how people think to understand exactly this problem. So let's pop the hood on our brains and see what we can find. Coming up after the break. All right, we're back. So quick recap. Campaign rhetoric, television promotion, doomsday movements, what do they all have in common? They all appeal to us by promising something new and critical, and we seem to be very bad at figuring out what's true and what's false. So I wondered, what is going on inside of our heads? Like, these messages are clearly exploiting some weakness inside of us. What is it? Well, it is time for a formal introduction. I'm Robert Cloninger. I'm a psychiatrist and a geneticist and a psychologist. Robert is a professor emeritus at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis and has spent his career studying personality, its biological basis, its psychology, and its development. And he's been doing this in order to try to understand processes like what captures our interest in new and complex things and also what inhibits our response to those situations. And Robert says that this is important because people have a big problem. We are often very bad at recognizing when we're being manipulated. So the average person is simply emotionally reactive and not very mature in self-control and not self-aware of how they really want to accomplish things that are truly important to them. And so they substitute what other people and advertisers and demagogues promise them, like a young child who's immature and easily misled and influenced. But Robert says it does not have to be this way. So let's take a quick peek into our brains. I've mapped all the genes for human personality 
a thousand genes that are, we know how they're organized in networks and how they influence learning and memory. This work has helped him to identify three distinct systems that we as humans have that influence learning and memory. We need these systems to be working in harmony, and we need them to be integrated. When they're not, we are in trouble. So let's briefly walk through each of them. The first is the habit system. Let me summarize the way it's necessary to think about it. Sure. Each of us has certain emotional drives that lead us to have habits that we try to satisfy. But one of those is a predisposition to avoid things that frighten us, that are not rewarding, that are unfamiliar. And there are some people who are very shy, very inhibited, and they're noticeable in their tendency to be worried pessimists. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's another trait, another emotional drive that we also all have. And that is an interest in in things that are new and complex that signal us an opportunity to change, which can be something that we're curious about or interested in, and that requires us to begin new kinds of actions. And so these two drives, one to inhibit our response to things that are unfamiliar, and another that attracts us to approach the unfamiliar, the curious, the mysterious are always competing, and people vary in the strength of those two drives. You can think of your habits, and therefore your actions, as a result of this tension. We are always being pulled between a fear of the new and a curiosity of the new. It's why change is such a complicated subject for us. We can at once be resistant to change and also embracing of it. And the result of that tension determines what we do with ourselves. So if you have a strong fear of the new, but also a strong interest in the new, you might develop a set of interests that provides the sensation you're seeking, but from a distance. And that may, for example, lead you not to be a daredevil or a skydiver or an adventurer, but someone who writes novels. Because novelists, these are anxious people. I know quite a few of them. So that's the first system. The second system is more straightforward. A system for intention and acquisition of facts that allow us to set goals. I like that word intention a lot. It's not just about identifying facts, but it's about being intentional about facts. Take in information and make goals based off of it. And then we have one more system. The third system that allows us to be self-aware. Am I being manipulated? What is my current emotional state? And how are my actions being driven by that? This is the third system that influences our learning and memory. And here's the thing about these three systems. Robert says that some of this is very animalistic and some of it is very human. Our system of harm avoidance and how our habits and behaviors are born out of what we fear and what we don't, that is downright reptilian. Our ability to identify things that are provable and true. I mean, a dog can do that. These are old systems deeply inside of us. But the third one, Robert says, the one about self-awareness where we can recognize how our emotions impact our decisions, that's not as simple. What really distinguishes humans from all other animals is this capacity for self-awareness that can be nurtured, but sometimes isn't. And it's not particularly being nursed in our society today to our, I think, misfortune. But oh, that's interesting. Can, can, I, can I restate that back to you to make sure I understand? So 
So if we're talking about different systems, the system of self-awareness, you're saying, is the one that is, I mean, obviously our ability to be self-aware is something that is built within us biologically, but the actual refinement of it requires uh, a level of focus as we develop into more mature people that the other systems don't really require as much. The ability to um, kind of react against danger or to, to, or to, to a system that kind of seeks out new, these are things that are, you don't really need to be taught these things. I mean, you can refine them, but, but they're just sort of part of us. But the actual ability to be self-aware and to be critical of our reactions is something that we need to be trained to do. And that's the distinct nature of that system compared to the others. And that's what we don't necessarily focus on teaching ourselves to do. Is that, do I understand that correctly? That's very well said. I'm going to pick on one word you said. Sure. And I'll get back, I'll explain why. Actually, you stated the overall perspective very well. And I think one point is that I wouldn't want to use the word train because training sounds like instruction and conditioning. And what has to happen is to create the conditions in which the person can begin to feel the freedom to explore and to discover for themselves, to think for themselves, and not to just do what they've told they should do obediently and so on. And so we found that in prospective studies from childhood into middle adulthood up to, say, from age three to age uh, 60, that there are certain conditions that are necessary to really have a creative self-awareness. And that is that you need to have been positively nurtured with love and warmth. You need to have been given the freedom to make mistakes when it's reasonably safe so that you can learn to think for yourself and not depend on what other people tell you to do or just on your habits and your customs. And so these conditions are not a matter of training, but of nurturing and encouragement And when you raise people under conditions of fear and you don't give them accurate information to process, they don't develop confidence that they can face reality and do effective problem solving. And they lose that sense of wonderment about what's new and mysterious and complex that can be healthy. But that's not to say adults cannot improve themselves. Robert says they can. It requires spending a lot of time understanding why we react to the things that we do. And Robert runs a nonprofit called the Anthropedia Foundation. That's anthro for human, pedia for teaching, a little lesson in ancient Greek for you there. These are centers around the US and Europe. And the idea, he says, is to teach people how to be the full humans they're capable of being, helping people overcome trauma or personality disorders or whatever. The foundation developed a lot of mind-body exercises. They run meditation centers. They teach people to be well-being coaches. And I tell you all of this as a way to say the change he's talking about of developing an underdeveloped system of self-awareness, it takes time and work, but it can happen. And also you can do it in little ways without even taking on some big project and going to some foundation. For what it's worth, here is one little thing that I started doing a few years ago to protect my own system of self-awareness. I used to follow a lot of political reporters on Twitter, which meant that whenever a politician or pundit did something outrageous, I'd read all the tweets, and then I'd read all the stories, and then I'd get all worked up. And a few years ago, I realized... 
What a waste. I am losing hours of my day getting in heated imaginary arguments with idiots on cable news. I mean, the idiots on cable news said whatever idiotic thing they said just so that I would waste half my day getting in heated imaginary arguments with them. When I am upset, they win. So I unfollowed all of the political reporters. Now, whenever I see news about someone doing something stupid, I basically ignore it. And that decision is what the doctor ordered. For us to be healthy and happy and not to be just led by the nose, we have to be aware of how people push our buttons and exploit our drives and desires and fears. And at the same time, most people believe that their perspective is the right one. And that even if other people don't really agree, it's a good thing to use whatever means possible to manipulate others to get them to share their view. So, okay. To appreciate the fullness of that observation, let's do a little thought experiment. Remember how earlier in this episode I said that phrases like the most important election of our lifetime work because, you know, there have been most important elections? And same is true with The Bachelor and with End of Days. If something happened in the past, then we could be convinced that it's happening now. But let's counter-program that. Can we prove to ourselves that least important things have happened in the past? Well, we can start by identifying the least important election of our lifetime. Remember, I promised to offer an answer to this at the very beginning of the show. So do you have one in your head? Because this guy sure does. I'm Jeff Greenfield. I've spent my life covering mostly American politics for a series of TV networks. ABC, CNN, CBS, PBS, and now he's a columnist at Politico magazine. And back in August, Jeff wrote a piece headlined, The Least Important Election of Our Lives. So... What was it? To me, the answer is absolutely clear. It's 1996 when Bill Clinton was reelected and defeated Bob Dole, the Republican nominee. Why? Well, take a trip back to those heady days of 1996. To begin with, 1996 was uh, a hotbed of rest rather than unrest. The economy was in great shape. We were heading toward full employment. There was no inflation. There was real economic growth. Real incomes were beginning to rise. And... Hard as it is to believe, the government was beginning to run big surpluses. It looks like over the next decade, we were going to have something like $5 trillion in budget surpluses. By contrast, the U.S. budget is currently running a deficit of $3.1 trillion. So back in 1996, the big debate was what to do with all that money. Meanwhile, the Cold War had ended. Nobody had heard of al-Qaeda, let alone ISIS. Both candidates were moderate, and the campaigns themselves were fairly drama-free. Oh, and the conventions? The highlight was one night when women who'd been appointed to significant positions in the Clinton administration came out and led the delegates in a rendition of the Macarena. Now, of course, plenty of drama would unfold in the second Clinton administration. But back then, when people were asked to go to the polls and think about whether they approved or disapproved of the Macarena, there wasn't that much that seemed to be at stake. So given all that, did anyone at the time declare Clinton Dole to be the most important election of our lifetime? Well, yes, on both sides. In May of 1996, this kooky guy in Vermont named Bernie Sanders, who was announcing that he was running for re-election in the U.S. House of Representatives, declared that, quote, I have no hesitation in saying that this is the most important election in our lifetimes and an election in which the choices have never been clearer, end quote. And a few months later, in September of 1996, Ralph Reed of the Christian Coalition told his audience that, quote, this is the most important election of our lifetime, end quote. I tried to find audio of those talks, but I couldn't. 
Both of those quotes were found in Associated Press articles from the time. But I did find this speech that Ralph Reed gave just a few days before the election titled The Christian Coalition's View of the Election, in which he made the case that this wasn't just the most important election of our lifetimes, but of future lifetimes too. We are here, of course, 12 days before the last presidential election of this decade, the last election of this century, and indeed, for the first time since the first Europeans landed on this continent 400 years ago, the last election of a millennium. And so we choose not only the leaders for the next century, we choose the leaders for the third millennium. That is a unique moment in the history of our country. And uh, if you look back at the history of America, it is the last election of a century that always sets the tone and the priorities for the coming century. That's a cute riff, but uh, I mean, the election of 1796 was won by John Adams, who continued the Federalist policies and Rather than that setting the tone for the next century, it came to a screeching halt when he lost the next election to Jefferson. And 1896, William McKinley won. And to make the case that he defined the next century, you'd have to say that his primary role was to get assassinated and be replaced by his vice president, Theodore Roosevelt, who certainly was consequential. But that was not exactly what people were voting for in the polls at the time. So what are we left with from Ralph's history lesson? Well, I'm reminded of what psychologist Robert Cloninger said. Most people believe that their perspective is the right one, he told me, and so they think it's perfectly fine to use whatever means possible to manipulate others into sharing their views. We cannot stop people from doing that. If we could, well, I guess that literally would be the most important thing to happen in our lifetime, but barring that, we can only focus on one thing, ourselves, our self-awareness, our willingness or opposition to be someone else's tool. Because we are a bundle of contradictions. We fear change and we want change. We prefer what's familiar and we're curious about what's new and we form habits and gather facts and try to make sense of the world as best we can while at the same time giving ourselves over to people who scramble our understanding of the world to meet their own needs. So I'll tell you what I've started to do just as a way to give my brain a moment to take everything in. When anyone tells me that this is the best or most important or most dramatic or most interesting or most pressing or newest or unprecedented or unique or anything like that, I think false until proven true. And then I think, well, is it? Because maybe it is true. But I'll decide that for myself. And that's our episode. But hey, that is not the end of least important things that I have to tell you. Maybe Clinton Dole was the least important election of our lifetime. But what about the least important American election of all time? Well, I have an answer that you and every historian can debate. But first, if you love this show, then please subscribe, tell a friend, and give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And reach out. You can contact me directly by going to my website, jasonpfeiffer.com, J-A-S-O-N-F as in Frank, E-I, F as in Frank, E-R.com, where you can get in touch, sign up for my newsletter about how to find opportunity and change and more. This episode was reported by me and Britta Lochting, sound editing by Alec Bayless. Our webmaster is James Stewart. Our theme music is by Casper Babypants. Learn more at babypantsmusic.com. The voice actors you heard during this episode were Gia Mora. You can find her at giamora.com and Brent Rose. Find him at brentrose.com. And thanks to Pen Name Consulting, Gordon Brott, Johan Norberg, Johnny Rokia, Aaron David Miller, and to the Washington Post, which compiled a much longer version of that most important election montage that I played at the beginning. 
This show is supported in part by Stand Together and the new book, Believe in People by Charles Koch. Believe in People is a surprising take on how you can tackle America's biggest problems and the stories of social entrepreneurs who already made their mark, not just in our history books, but in our cities, our schools, and our country's greatest areas of need. The book hinges on a simple premise that could help answer some of society's biggest problems, unite with anyone willing to do right. From poverty to education to substance abuse, Believe in People follows the stories of people who reached across barriers and borders to everyone's benefit. It's a book about how change happens and how the seemingly small everyday decisions we make can change society for the better. Famed investor Mark Andreessen called it, quote, a roadmap for solving our country's biggest problems, end quote. Pre-order Believe in People today at believeinpeoplebook.com slash PA and gain access to bonus content ahead of its November 17th publication. All right. So what was the least important election of all time? A few weeks ago, I was on the James Altucher show talking about this very subject in advance of this podcast that I was making. And James had a theory. Here is from that episode. 1924, Calvin Coolidge versus John Davis. Mm. And the only reason I'm saying this is it's, it's between world wars where America had gotten a lot more isolationist after World War I. Mm-hmm. So the issue of war wasn't debatable. And Coolidge's party wasn't responsible for World War One, And uh, there was also the 1920s boom times. So things were pretty good. Coolidge was also very, an honest person. Like he, he replaced, you know, Warren G. Harding, who was corrupt and, and died in office. And then finally, both John Davis and Coolidge were conservative politically, so conservative and so similar in their issues that Robert La Follette became kind of this socialist third party candidate because there was no alternative to the conservative views that both major candidates had. Agree? Disagree? Let me know. That is it for this time. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Pfeiffer and let's keep building for tomorrow.